reasons for faith. You know, last Sunday we took a look, and if you missed it, I would encourage you to go online and listen because it's kind of a package. Last Sunday we looked at the fact that God is a God who wants to reach out to us. He's a God that wants to communicate to you. He's a God of truth. He's a God that reveals himself. And the first thing we learned last week was he did it through the scriptures. We looked at the question on the screen, is the Bible credible and reliable? What we saw was that there's all kinds of evidence behind the scriptures to show you the fingerprints of God on the word of God, on the scriptures, that we can trust them. They are his revelation. Today, we're going to take that one step further and ask the question, what's so unique about Jesus? You know, we all believe in Jesus. He wouldn't be here if he didn't have some confidence or some level of faith in Jesus. But our culture has a very different view of Jesus than we do here at Seacoast. And we want to explore that together this morning and ask the question, is Jesus really unique? Okay, so pray with me. Father God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the chance to listen and to learn from you. Thank you that you are a God, as we learned last week, who communicates to us. You love us. And out of that love, you speak to us. I pray that you, by your spirit, would speak into our lives and our hearts, our minds today. We ask you to do that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today's Palm Sunday. You see the kids waving the palms. This Friday is Good Friday. We'll gather for a special communion service, all part of what we call Holy Week in the Christian tradition. Next Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection through Easter. And even though for us it's a big deal, I think the thing I want to focus on this morning is to help us understand uh, that it's probably a bigger deal than you even understand. I want you to understand with me, however, that for an increased percentage of Americans, they have very little interest in joining our Easter party. They have very little interest, let alone in being here for Easter or worshiping the what we call the risen living Christ. Because for them, Easter has kind of become like the uh, secularized side of Christmas as well. It's kind of one of those fun little religious holidays. This is the springtime ritual. It's all about Easter eggs. It's all about candy. It's all about chocolate bunnies. I'm for chocolate bunnies. Amen. Okay, anyone for the chocolate bunnies? Yeah, even if they're hollow inside now. I remember the days when chocolate bunnies were solid, real chocolate bunnies, not these culturally downsized. Anyway, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting over it. But anyway, that's a hint to my wife. Get me a real chocolate bunny this year. But anyway, but you know, Americans, though, no lie, often see Easter as kind of something that is full of fluff but lacks substance. Uh, as I thought of a way to kind of introduce this, uh, let me be a little bit crazy with you. To me, this is how the culture thinks about Easter. You know what these are? Peeps. Okay, peeps. Any peeps lovers in the room? Great. There's a few peeps lovers. Yeah. Anybody eat peeps other than at Easter? Raise your hand. No one? One person. Okay, we have a recovery ministry for you. But anyway, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay, you're welcome to your peeps. Yeah. But, you know, in the first service, I talked about this as well. You know, because to me, peeps are a great symbol of the cultural view of Jesus. Peeps are sweet as you can be. Uh, They're sweet, fluffy, fun, but you're not really going to build a life on eating peeps, right? Now, the first service, I actually invited one of our youth to come up. Anybody told me they really love peeps? Do I have a volunteer? Do I have a volunteer? Probably not. No? Okay. After the service, these are yours, okay? (laughs) Want your peeps lovers. But the reason I I wanted to bring these and just kind of show them to you was... Uh, you know, I, when I looked around, these are actually kind of peeps on a pop. 
I mean, these are for the serious peep addict. <laughs> you know, the yellow one was there until the uh, teenager in the first service uh, took it down in one bite. But uh, no matter what the colors are, they're sweet, they're fun, but they lack substance. And I think a lot of times it's kind of a symbol of how the culture really views Jesus. The reality, though, is when we look at Jesus today, I want us to look at Jesus and think about Jesus and listen to Jesus as if you have never met him before. Because what we're going to see is that he is unique. What we're going to see today is that there's some irrefutable claims that Jesus makes about himself that we've got to process and deal with if you're going to decide what you really believe about Jesus and what your relationship with him is going to be on a daily level. The Apostle John is where I want to take you to kind of look at a passage that has a lot of information, very rich revelation about the person of Jesus. John was the disciple that, according to uh, history and Scripture, was the closest to Jesus of any of the disciples. John was the disciple that was so tight with Jesus that uh, when Jesus was dying on the cross and he knew his mother was a widow, he entrusted the care of his own mom to this disciple. So when this disciple speaks about Jesus, he's probably spent more time up close with Jesus than anybody who ever lived on planet Earth. And this is how John, under revelation from God, describes Jesus. Listen to it. John 1.1. Pick it up if you have a Bible with me. There's an outline if you want to follow along. John writes this. In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In fact, all things came into being or into existence through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come to be. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I'll jump down to verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is his own people, the nation of Israel. And they were, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now listen to the next few verses. Here is the bottom line. And the word became flesh. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's the Word coming down to earth, being born in a human body. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, referring to the word Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or revealed him. You know, as I listen to this passage And I think about uh, what we learn about the nature of Jesus. I want to focus you on three key aspects today. But before we go there, 
I want to show you what I think is kind of the essence of why John is writing these, this tremendous passage describing Jesus. It really kind of comes to a point in verse 14 and 18. Look at verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh. Now, last week we learned that God is all about words. God was about revealing Himself through words. And He wrote the Scriptures and delivered the Scriptures to us. But now He uses that metaphor and He says, And the Word actually became flesh. So now, God is not just revealed in the words of the text, but God comes alive in front of us. Now we have a chance to see God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now jump down to verse 18. As a result, he says this, No one has seen God at any time. You know, you don't see God. God doesn't just show up and personify Himself in front of us. The invisible typically is not visible. But in this case, God makes an exception. It says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, that is Jesus, He has revealed Him. He has explained Him to us. So He fleshes out God for us to see. I think the essence of what I'm saying is this. The uniqueness of Jesus is really captured in this, that Jesus was not another prophet speaking about God. The culture is full of God prophets, people that are holy men, people that are think they've... They have a revelation from God. They have a dream from God. They want to tell you about God. Jesus is not a prophet speaking about God, but God speaking about the prophets. And that captures the radical difference in Jesus. He's not just another prophet, but he is God speaking about the prophets. With Jesus, what you see is a a radical shift. The Word becomes flesh. Another way to say it is the invisible becomes visible. Another way to say it is is that the heavenly invaded the earth. The unapproachable God actually approaches us and lands in our midst. Now, when you look at that list on the screen, the word becomes flesh. Invisible is now fleshed out so we can see and hear and and, and listen to God and, and observe God. In other words, the Spirit of God takes on flesh, takes on a body in Jesus that God might walk and talk among us. He might eat and sleep among us, live and love among us, so that we can see up close and personal purely what God is like, that we might fall in love with Him. Jesus truly is one of a kind. Now, when I break down the rest of these verses in John 1, though, beginning in verse 1 all the way down, we'll probably carry it down through verse 18 this morning, I I see three big ideas about Jesus that tell me how unique He is, that we have to we have to deal with. Number one, he's unique in what he claimed for himself and what John says he claimed. And especially verses one through five give us five ways that Jesus makes claims that are very unique from other religious teachers or leaders. Here, here they are. Number one, it says, in the beginning was the word. In other words, Jesus says, I go all the way back. I am eternal. I'm from the very beginning of time. I am the eternal one, he says. In fact, in John chapter 8, I'll give you some cross-references where other places Jesus said the same thing about himself in his own words. John 8, 58, if you want to write the reference down. Jesus was talking, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, even before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I am, meaning I existed. 
Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. Now, why just because he says, before Abraham was, I am. Why would you try to stone a guy for saying something like that? Well, it's because the Jews understood what it meant. You see, what this shows you is that not the friends of Jesus recognized that Jesus claimed to be the eternal God, but the enemies of Jesus understood that he was claiming to be the eternal God. It was his enemies who took up the stones to throw at him because they say, why are you stoning me? And he says elsewhere, he says, because you, they said to Jesus, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So it was the blasphemy that Jesus was committing, claiming something that they knew meant that he was indeed deity, that he was eternal, that they took up stones to stone him. Elsewhere, he states it direct as John does. Second point, he says, I am not just eternal, I am God the Son. It says, in the beginning was the Word, verse 2, and the Word, verse 1, and the Word was with God, but then the Word was God. It was not only with God, but was God. Now again, what we're talking about here is the same thing Jesus declared. Let me give you another reference in John 10.30. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And the Jews again took up stones to stone him. Same thing. The enemies recognized he was claiming deity. He was claiming to be God. He was putting himself on that level. It's clear that Jesus is affirming that doctrine that we have central to our faith as Christians, that the very essence of God is a real mystery in that there is only one God, no doubt. The scriptures are crystal clear. There's one God. But yet the one God manifests himself in three persons, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And Jesus is saying, I am God the Son. In fact, he goes even beyond that, and he says, I am the creator of the universe. Now, if that doesn't convince you that he thought he was God, nothing will. Look at John 1 again. He says, he was in the beginning with God, verse 2, verse 3, all things came into existence through Jesus, through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come to be. In other words, Jesus says, I'm the creator of everything in John 1, 3. We see this repeatedly as Jesus is presenting himself to people. We see it in the heart of a lot of his miracles. For example, in Mark 4, 41, where Jesus calms the sea, his disciples had this reaction. They said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In Mark 4, 41. See, a lot of Jesus' miracles evidenced his control over creation, that he's actually the creator God. He's not just some second-rate prophet of God. He's not just a, even in some special sense, as some religions teach, that he is kind of the son of God. But no, he's not just the son of God or the offspring of God, because that's something that Scripture teaches that's true of even you and me. In other words, he says, as many as believe in him, to them he gives the right to become, what? Children of God. So I could say, I'm a son of God, I'm a child of God. But, but this is something very, very different. Jesus is saying, I'm not just the son of God, I'm God the son. And he, he flips it around and it's a claim for his deity. He claims it elsewhere in scripture repeatedly. And his miracles evidence it because he's actually able to control creation. The ultimate control of creation, of course, is the fourth observation. And that is, he makes the claim that he's even gives life when you face death. Look at John 1, 4. Just keep working your way through the passage and listen to it. He says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
Jesus is saying, now I'm not just the source of creation. I'm the source of life. I'm the one that delivers life, physical life. I'm the one that delivers spiritual life. I'm the one that when he came to a religious guy named Nicodemus, who was a, a very religious, moral guy, he lived a very nice life. He always went to church, went to synagogue, memorized the scriptures, you know, tried to obey the law of God the best he could. But even when he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, what's missing? Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're a great guy, but you need a spiritual birth. Because of sin, we die spiritually. And Jesus is saying, I'm the source of life. I'll bring life to your soul. I'll bring life to you. I'm going to bring you to life. And Jesus delivers that. It's called being born again. But that's not a political statement. That's not some weird thing. It's Jesus is saying, look, when you're spiritually dead, you need spiritual life. And I deliver life. Jesus is the creator of everything. He delivers life. We see it elsewhere. Jesus, for example, John 10.10 said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. My favorite is John 11.25. I'll give you this one on the screen real quick. Jesus, after bringing a friend of his named Lazarus, who had been dead and was starting to decay in the tomb, Jesus shows up. People say, hey, Jesus, why'd you come so late? I mean, good grief, we ask you to come. Your best friend, he's died. If you could have only been here, you could have stopped him from dying. Could have healed him. Jesus says, you know, you guys don't get it, basically. He says, you don't get it. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So he's even evidence is there in the front of a crowd to call Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and walks and is resurrected by Jesus. See, Jesus, when we talk about the uniqueness of Jesus. What I'm showing you is a series of, of claims that Jesus makes about himself. John teaches them and summarizes them in chapter 1 of John. But repeatedly, it is just driving home the idea that Jesus is the most unique character who ever lived. And he's claiming to be far more than another religious guru or teacher. Let me just give you one more so I can wrap up John 1, 1 through 5. In verse 5, he says, he was in him was life. The life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Observation number five is that he claimed to not only be the source of life, but to be the source of light when you're in the darkness, light when you're in the darkness. And it's not just John's opinion. Did Jesus say this about himself? In John eight twelve, the stories recorded where Jesus speaks and he says to the crowd, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So when he brings life, the life that he brings is the light of men. In other words, when you come to life in Christ, he turns on the light so you can begin to spiritually discern and understand what life is all about. So you can understand God. So you can understand who you are. Understand who you are in a relationship with God. We'll get to that in the end of the message today. But it changes everything when the light comes on and you understand Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the light, to be the source of life, to be over death, to be the creator, to be the son, God the Son, and indeed the eternal one. These are radical claims by Jesus. Now, the reason I wanted to walk you through this today is not because most of you in the room don't already know this. 
I wanted to walk you through for a couple of reasons. One is because I think most of you know this, but you've forgotten the impact of it. I think you get up on Monday morning and you don't realize how radical Jesus is. And we take him way too lightly, even as his followers. You're talking about the man who says, I am the source of your life. And I want to be the Lord of your life. I deserve to be the Lord of your life. And if you're smart, you want me there because I'm the source of life. I'm going to turn on the light. I want to show you how to live. I want to, I want to provide everything you need to walk in a relationship with the living God and do life as God designed it to be lived. That's the radical Jesus we're talking about. I wanted you to understand and be awakened again to the uniqueness of Jesus. But I also want you to confront the fact that we live and represent Jesus in a culture that does not buy this. And in fact, increasingly, if you are captured or you're caught um, disclosing the fact that you believe Jesus was God, you believe he was God in human flesh, you believe, as Jesus said, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, then you are a narrow-minded, ignorant bigot in the eyes of the culture. Now, if you're not up for that, then you ought to bail out now. Because in the culture, in the eyes of contemporary modern thinking of our culture, it's like, how dare anybody claim to have the truth? Let alone say, I don't just have the truth, I am the truth. I am the way. I don't just offer a way, I am the way. I offer the truth. I am the truth. I am the life. You got to understand that Jesus was rattling the cage. He was rattling the world. He was shaking up the thinking of the religions of his day. And he shakes it up today as well. And if we're going to be followers of Christ in today's world, you got to be comfortable realizing you, if you understand the real Jesus, are going to be you're going to be looked on at times as a nut. So welcome to the uh, welcome to the can of nuts. But how do you respond to the culture? If they if they would say to you, why? Excuse me. If they would say to you, why do you hold such a crazy view of Jesus? Isn't it, doesn't it make more sense to just say, you know something, I respect Jesus and I follow Jesus, but I also, you know, maybe Jesus was, you know, there's a lot of good moral teachers, religious leaders. There's a lot of sources of truth in our world. Maybe Jesus is the best one for you, but why does he have to be the best one for me? Can't we all follow whatever teacher we want to follow. And Jesus is a good one. But don't tell me he's the only one. How would you answer that? Apart from just saying with confidence, as Andy has, that he is, and I appreciate that, let me tell you how I would walk someone through this. Uh, I think the guy that mastered this better than I could for for sure was C.S. Lewis. And if if you've seen this before, then... Get refreshed on it because I think you need it in today's world. And if it's new to you, 
then uh, maybe this will help you for the first time. Lewis called Jesus, in light of the claims that he makes, uh, the creator of what he called, uh, like it's like a dilemma, uh, when you're caught in a dilemma, but in this case it's a trilemma. And he calls it the trilemma that we face concerning Jesus. And his logic goes like this. If you take an honest look at what Jesus said and, and what he taught and what he claimed, then you really just got two choices. You got two options. Either they are true or they are false. Does that make sense? Is there a third option? Yes or no? No. Either they're true or false. Now, if they're false, as I understand it, Lewis says, you got two more options. Either he claimed them, but they're false, and he knew that they were false, but he did it anyway, or he didn't get it. He, he was deceived. Uh, maybe his parents wanted to have a Messiah in the family. As one person asked me uh, a couple weeks back, you know, maybe the followers of Jesus decided, you know something, the world needs a Savior, let's make one, you know. And, and they knew that they were making it up. Or maybe Jesus did not know that they were false, but he grew up being told he was Messiah. He grew up hearing the scriptures. He grew up hearing all about, hey, guess what? This one was born in Bethlehem, so that's a good start. So let's, you know, you know, whatever. For Jesus had a Messiah complex, and he really thought he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but he wasn't. Those are the only two options. He either knew it or he didn't know it. Now, if he knew it, uh, Lewis explains... Uh, in mere Christianity, he says, look, if he knew it, then he is the greatest liar who ever lived. Because he knew it, and he convinced his followers of it, and he's perpetrated a lie that has started a movement that to this day we get out of bed and come to church because of this lie. So Jesus is the world's greatest liar. Secondly, if he did not know it, then he's a nut. He is, like us, he is a nut. He is a lunatic, and, 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 he's, and he's one of the greatest lunatics who ever lived. Uh, or if it's true, then he is who he claimed to be, which is Lord of the universe, Savior of mankind, and, and, and deserving of all of our worship and affection and love and obedience. And, 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 and he says these are really the only three choices. Now, concerning these options, let me give you a couple quotes. Uh, is Jesus, when you study his life, do you, does he come across to you as the greatest liar who ever lived? And the answer to that is no. Here's a quote from an opponent of Christianity, not a, not a follower of Jesus, but an opponent of Jesus once wrote this. He said this, Jesus showed not only the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice. Jesus has done more to change the morals of mankind, that is for better, than all the philosophers and moralists combined. And that written by an opponent of Jesus. See, if you look at Jesus, almost no one says, yeah, you can tell this guy was probably a, uh, he was just kind of a, he was just a compulsive liar. He's lying all the time, you know, but it doesn't fit Jesus. Secondly, was he a nut? Was he deranged? One historian put it this way. He said, is such an intellect as Jesus had, that is clear as the sky, bracing as the mountain air, sharp and penetrating as a sword, thoroughly healthy and vigorous, always ready, always self-possessed or under control. That was how Jesus comes across. Is he liable to the radical and serious delusion uh, and serious delusion concerning his own character and mission? He says it's preposterous to imagine that. In other words, Jesus doesn't come across like a fruitcake. He doesn't come across like some weird, uh, weird lunatic who was 
had a Messiah complex. That's not how he comes across at all. So the reality is the only option you're left with that does fit Jesus is that he was who he said he was and he is Lord. Lewis writes this classic quote. He says this, C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying here in the trilemma to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That, that is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say about Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman and something worse. And I think Lewis, as a former skeptic himself of Christianity, when you look at Jesus objectively, these are the three options you're left with. So take your choice. That's the issue. Now the question, though, is Jesus was unique in his claims, but... Was he unique in his character? And I think John also kind of nails that down, especially if you look ahead with me to verses 14 and following. He captures in verse 14 the essence of who Jesus was. And he, and he talks about his character and summarizes it in two little words. Here it is, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth, full of grace and full of truth. You see, those two words in and of themselves capture the character of Jesus. First, that Jesus is the God of truth. That's the first thing we want to capture. He was the God of truth, and then he's also going to be the God of grace. Okay, so he's unique in his character. Bring that up on the screen. Jesus is the God of truth. That's what I want you to catch. Jesus would say later, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's the most radical claim by Jesus ever made. Why does he do it? Because it's true. He doesn't do it because it's popular. He doesn't do it because people wanted him to say that. In fact, statements like that got Jesus in trouble. They got people picking up rocks to throw at him. He got people rejecting him. He got people walking away from him. There were times that Jesus would deliver truth. There's one story in John where Jesus delivers some tough truth about the fact that he's going to give his own body as a sacrifice for their sins. And it actually says in the story that many people turned away and no longer followed him because they said, we can't accept this truth. So Jesus wasn't a guy that always tried to play to the masses. Jesus, he, he wasn't trying to build a big following by giving them whatever they want to hear. Jesus, in contrast to that, was a man who consistently would give the truth even if it caused people to walk away from him. He's the source of truth. Jesus was full of truth. But then that gives the, the next meaning, the next uh, phrase even more meaning because Jesus was also the God of grace. One of the most radical things that we learn about Jesus was that he was not just full of truth, but that truth led him to be the God of grace. In John 1, kind of look ahead, jump ahead a little bit with me in John chapter 1, 
down to verse 29, okay? We're mainly focused on the first 18 verses. But in verse 29, what's happening is Jesus is coming out, you might say coming out of the closet. Jesus is beginning to openly teach, openly do his ministry. And he shows up and John the Baptist, who had had a special ministry of kind of letting people know, hey, Messiah is on the way, okay? John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says something radical about Jesus in verse 29. He says, the next day when he saw Jesus coming, John the Baptist said this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, what John declares about Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is the most radical, most unique departure from religious thinking in history. Why do I say that? Because every other religion, in one way or another, uh, recognizes, okay, you got a God, you got man, and somehow man wants the gods to like him. Got it? Man wants to get on the good side with the gods. So in virtually every religion, in one way or the other, the religion teaches how to improve your status before God. You've got to bring God something. I mean, you've already screwed up, so you've got to bring something to the table. And those are called offerings or they're called sacrifices. And no matter what you study, in one way or the other, you need to punish yourself. You need to whip yourself. You'll see sometimes pictures of followers of Islam walking around some of the holy sites flailing themselves inflicting pain on themselves because, again, this is all to earn the favor of God. This is all to appease God for your sins. And religions always tell people, hey, bring me a sacrifice, bring me an offering, and it better be a good one because, you know, you're in trouble and I'm God. So if you want me on your side, if you want to have favor with God, bring the offering, bring the sacrifice. Jesus shows up and you get this radical statement. Behold, this is the God you should bring your sacrifice to. Is that what he says? No, he says, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Now, to us, when you think of lambs, maybe you just think of, you know, again, let, you know, the fluffy side of religion. Little lambs are just cute fur balls, you know, that are kind of cute, cuddly. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you get a little lamb. So, but for the Jews, when, when they said, especially in and around the time of the year we are right now of the Passover, um, the lamb was a sacrificial animal. The lamb was nurtured and raised for the purpose of being sacrificed on behalf of the sins of the person or the family. So when they say, this is going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what Jesus is claiming about himself and what John is declaring about Jesus is that, you know something? Every other religious leader says, follow me and bring a sacrifice as you do it. Jesus says, come to me because I will be your sacrifice. No other time in the history of the world has... Someone come and said, you know something? I am the Son of God and I have come to be your sacrifice so that you don't have to bring offerings and sacrifices to God. That is, you don't bring them to God to try to earn anything from Him because guess what? That doesn't get the job done. You're still in your heart of hearts a sinner and sin separates you from a holy God. And because Jesus was full of truth, he knew that. 
So he wouldn't present other paths to God if they don't get there. If Jesus wanted to be politically correct in today's American culture, he would have come and said, by the way, I'm a great option. Come follow me. But you know something? I understand that all paths lead to God. Every path leads to the top of the mountain. doesn't matter which path you take, but maybe try my path. Jesus didn't do that because, number one, he's full of truth. And the truth is sin has to be paid for. And if that's the truth, and if we can't do our own because, we sin, because we're sinners, we're not qualified to pay for our own sin. There's no sacrifice we can bring. Then Jesus, because he's full of truth, he tells the truth because he's full of grace. He says, here's the plan. I'll be the sacrifice. And he comes as our substitute. Just like in the Old Testament, the Jews were taught every year, bring this little innocent lamb. The lamb didn't deserve the death. It was innocent. But they put the lamb to death. They, 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 they took the blood of the lamb uh, and sacrificed the lamb. And, and the blood was symbolic of, uh, of the lamb atoning for their sins. But yet it was really pointing forward toward the fact that someday God would provide the lamb that really did the deal, that really got it done. And that's Jesus. So when Jesus says, I'm the lamb of God, Jesus says, Trust in me and I will give you eternal life. That's not just Jesus, the God of truth. It's Jesus, the God of grace. You say, Dale, it's not fair. Why would the sacrifice of Jesus, even though he's the sinless son of God, why would his sacrifice pay for my sins? That doesn't even sound fair. I can't believe that. Well, then you can't believe grace. But see, one thing you need to know is grace is never fair. Grace is not about fairness. Grace is about doing what had to be done to solve the problem. Jesus came and offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins, my sins and the sins of the world. That's grace. It's not fair. It's a gift. It's a gift. Jesus, in his essence, He claimed to be the eternal God, the creator, the savior of the world. He claimed to be, um, he claimed to be the source of life and light. His claims were one of a kind. His character was one of a kind. He delivered both truth and grace at the same time. No one else does that. But the final thing I want to point out about Jesus from this passage is that Jesus is unique in a third way, and this brings it all together. He's unique in his pursuit of you and me and how he went about trying to bring life to us. He's unique in in several ways, but listen to John again, but this time pick it up in verse 9. Focus on 9 through 12, 9 through 13 even. He says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, but the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. What a contradiction that Jesus comes to the very world that he created and the world doesn't get it. So the people that Jesus has created, they don't understand who he is. They don't believe in him initially. And and he comes to his own people and they don't even believe in him. but, But then he makes this amazing statement in verse 12 that speaks and gives hope to you and me. He says this, but as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
who are born not of blood. In other words, it's not about whose relatives you are. Not about whether you come from the right bloodline. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not that you try to whip yourself into shape and you try harder and you make yourself good enough. Nor of the will of man. You can't try and you can't earn this gift. But you are born and made a child of God merely as a gift from God. It's not what you do, it's what he did. It's what he did. So what do we learn from that? Number one is this. When Jesus pursued bringing us back to God, restoring us to God, he took the biggest step ever taken by anyone in history. Because it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to bring us life. No God has ever loved enough to trade in being the God who is on the throne of heaven and stepping from the throne of heaven to being born in a stinking food trough in a manger and then headed to a destiny of dying on a cross. He exchanged the throne of heaven for a food trough and a cross at Christmas and Easter. That's a God who loves you in a very unique way. He took the biggest step anybody ever took to move toward us. Secondly, he paid the highest price. He gave it all. He gave his life. Behold, the Lamb of God who's going to be slaughtered to take away the sin of the world. He paid the highest price. He took the biggest step. And thirdly, he makes the most incredible offer. That offer in verse 12, don't don't, don't let it be so familiar that you don't appreciate it. He says, but as many as receive him, to them he became, he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who, who trust in or believe in his name. It doesn't mean just intellectually believe that he exists, but you put your your trust in him. This week, what I want to show you is that offer is so incredible because it doesn't just forgive your sins. I think a lot of times at Easter, especially Good Friday, we're going to focus on that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And that's true. And that's the beginning of our life. Okay? You got to have that forgiveness where he cleanses us and forgives us of our sin. But what I want you to see is that he does more than that, that the new life that Christ offers us changes everything. He delivers life and he delivers light. He makes life all that God has designed it to be. This week, if you will do the five appointments with God, um, I'm going to do something a little different. In fact, take out your outline and just look on the back of it with me real quick because I picked up, A few years ago, uh, this is adapted actually from some work that was done. It's not original with me. The original author of this work on the back of your handout is uh, a Christian psychologist named Maurice Wagner. And, And Wagner did a great job, I felt, of looking at all that Jesus does for us when he brings life to us. And what he does is he compared it with what he understood were the most basic human needs that make your life come alive. And he said there are three big things that every human being needs to, to live life. And I'll, I'll show, you, show them to you on a little diagram, but just get the big idea. Uh, Wagner said, uh, and, and Wagner put this in different language, but this is my summary of Wagner, is that he said, number one, everyone needs acceptance. You need to know that you are loved and that you are secure, that you are secure and safe and loved. And you need that sense of, yes, I know that I'm loved, loved by God, loved by others. And Jesus on the cross is the ultimate proof that you are loved. 
that you have a God who loved you enough that he would step off a throne in heaven to a stinking manger, to a horrendous cross, all for you because he loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for you. That tells you that when you place your faith in Christ, you are totally forgiven, accepted, and secure and loved by God. That's through the cross. It's through Jesus. Secondly, you don't just need to be accepted. You need to be able to do something or else, you know, life is kind of tough. You need a sense of competence that I can be and do what God wants me to be and do. I can't do anything. If you ask me, Dale, can you lead worship like Paige? No, I can't do that, okay? It's not my gift. But I have the ability to be and to do whatever God wants me to be and do through Christ. Because he not only covers your sin, he, his spirit, the spirit of Christ comes to live in you because he's alive. And so now you've got the spirit of Christ living in you, bringing your spirit to life and enabling you to grow over time to be and do whatever God wants you to be and do. That's real competence at the core of life. And then thirdly, you don't just want to have competence and acceptance. You say, well, why? That's purpose. That's significance. That is that my life has purpose. Everyone needs a sense of, why am I left around on planet Earth? I mean, am I just taking up some dirt? Am I just taking up space until I kick off and, and, and you know, take the dirt nap? You know, I don't think that's life. So what Jesus says is, I, I'm not only going to make you uh, know that you are accepted and competent, I want to give you real significance to your life because I want to use you by being a child of God, being part of the kingdom of God, to help bring life to other people. Now I've got a reason to get out of bed in the morning. I've got a reason to get out of bed, not just on Sundays. I've got a reason to get out of bed on Mondays to do whatever it is I do to make a living. It's a calling from God to be part of his kingdom. And there's real purpose and excitement and there's an adventure to that. To think that, wow, God wants to use me? Yes. That's why I say that in Christ and what he did on the cross, when you come to Christ, you receive not just acceptance, but you receive confidence, significance, and all of that is delivered in Christ. You don't earn a single bit of it. It's a gift. It's a gift. That's why I say that Jesus makes the greatest offer that anyone has ever made to you. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus really? See, I think a lot of times, even as Christians, we just get too familiar with Jesus. We forget the incredible claims that he made. We forget the incredible miracles that he did to back up those claims. We forget that he is full of truth and full of grace. We forget that he took the biggest step ever taken in the history of humanity out of his love for you and me. And that needs to win and woo our hearts to love him like we love no one else. And then out of that natural love for Jesus, you live life. And you live life and he gives you acceptance, confidence, significance, and a future that never, never ends. That's pretty cool. Amen? Amen. But even a gift as great as that does nothing for you unless you accept it. God can offer you the most incredible life, incredible gift through Christ. But if you don't accept it, 
it does you no good. So my challenge is own it. Accept it. Pray with me as the band comes. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the most incredible gift ever given.